Welcome to The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor at California State University, East Bay, and also a philosophical counselor. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes material. Good morning, everyone. Today, I have the great, the great pleasure to have here uh, for the podcast, uh, The Meaning of Life, Where Philosophy Gets Personal, Dr. Nicole Zipian. Nicole Zipian is a licensed uh, therapist, MFT therapist with uh, 17 years of uh, clinical experience. She's a candidate training in psychoanalysis at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. She serves uh, on the Visiting Scholar and Ethics Committees uh, at uh, PINC. From 2015 to 2019, Dr. Zepian served as professor and dean of the School of Professional Psychology and Health at California Institute of Integral Studies, overseeing six clinical training degree programs and five training clinics. She also served on the IRB and shared the research uh, committee at CIS. Prior to her clinical work, uh, Dr. Zepian spent a decade as a consultant designing, conducting, and overseeing over 200 quantitative and or qualitative studies for industry clients and five years as a public middle school mathematics teacher. She has authored two books and several articles on topics such as infidelity, ethics, technology, and our minds, decision-making biases, and sexuality. Currently, she is in the process of developing a podcast called Technology and the Mind, which is dedicated to the intersection of contemporary psychoanalytic ideas and consumer technology use. So it's uh, really my great pleasure to have you here, Nicole. from this very short presentation, uh, uh, we can already see the <laughs> immense range of, uh, of your qualities, of your talents. I mean, from, mother- from being a teacher in mathematics to uh, yeah, uh, working in industry and uh, being the dean of uh, a clinical program. I mean, uh, yeah. You are a person of several talents. I'm very happy to have you here today. Thank you, Dr. Farrella. That's very generous of you. So today we are talking about happiness. Uh, I I would like to ask you a few questions about uh, how you interpret happiness, uh, how what what role it plays in your life. So um, I, I might start from uh, this very simple question: When do you feel? Uh, very happy. What mm. are the conditions of the? Yeah. That's a very interesting question, but I don't think it's simple at all, actually, Um, (laughs) in the sense that happiness is a a word that is used very frequently. um, Mm -hmm. And yet I'm not so sure that we all agree 
Mm. on what exactly happiness is. So I would first start with just trying to understand, you know, what I'm about to say about what makes me most happy may mm -hmm. or may not be uh, the same happiness that you might uh, take into account or that others might. So um, I don't think we have intersubjective agreement on what the word means. But that said, if I put that aside mm -hmm. and just go with what I think happiness means, and for me, it's perhaps a complicated feeling. It's not uh, not only contentment or the absence of distress um, or euphoria or something, but it's more a sense of gratitude, a sense of surprise, a sense of uh, joy mm -hmm. uh, that can be fleeting or can be more long lasting. Mm -hmm. But usually it's something that I'm striving for and may or may not get um, <laughs> all the time or as I as I wish and uh, it, it's something that is um, really connected to being with other people mm. so mm -hmm. uh, not just any people or not just in any kind of um, feeling state but being with people who make me feel some combination of safety and inspiration and really enjoying their minds and their uh, warmth and their mm. um <clears throat> interest in things that they're interested in or interest in things that I'm interested in and the challenge that they might provide. So, mm -hmm. you know, I started out by saying safety and warmth, and those are maybe some key ingredients being with other people who make me feel good. But not mm -hmm. only that, I actually think there's some element of discomfort inside of happiness where oh. I like to be with people who are challenging of me and who surprise me and who give me something, something to chew on, you know, something for my mind to think about. And sometimes that can feel uncomfortable, but it can also be a source of tremendous joy. So I think happiness is perhaps um, multidimensional and complicated, and it's this unique mix of inspiration and safety and closeness and really feeling seen by other people, seeing their minds, having some sort of understanding of, oh, I really see how your mind works. It's mm -hmm. really interesting. You really see how my mind works. It's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind, of, that kind of experience can be really joyful. And when that's mm -hmm. coupled with laughter or some sort of mirth or lightness, even yeah. though there are heavy topics being dealt with, that's exquisite. I mean, that's really, that's really precious for me. Oh my God. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Lightness <laughs> is so important to mm -hmm. throw in the mix. And how there do are you a couple of, There are a couple of other things I want to add. There's some happiness in the body also. Mm. Um, so you know, pure physical pleasure, there can be for me through dancing, for example, or through music, yeah. sometimes it's mm -hmm. not always predictable, but sometimes I can experience real moments of pleasure at even having a body, if that makes any sense, through yeah. dance and music yeah. and just sort of, it's really simple actually. Um, mm -hmm. And I always find that surprising and exciting when that happens. Mm -hmm. Being embodied. Yeah. Being happy to actually feel your body and that's already enough for uh, yeah being in contact with the joy of life life mm -hmm. gave you a body and uh, you can enjoy it yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I can see that look how how do you combine how do you balance these difficult connections between uh, being challenged and feeling safe I mean mm -hmm. I know you work uh, with clients uh, uh, on another level I have clients too and I, uh, I often uh, uh, find myself answering their questions uh, like uh, when is it uh, enough uh, 
uh, with uh, a relationship? I mean, uh, how do I recognize? Uh, I worked enough on this relationship and uh, I, I, I should close it. Uh, one too much is, uh, is enough. I mean, uh, how, how do you see this balance between uh, being challenged and find yourself growing uh, in a relation with other people uh, and uh, craving for uh, safety, for lightness, for uh, enjoyment? Ah, that's a, that's a good question. I think the, um, the issue that you, you mentioned growth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes growth is not at all safe. It's not easy and yeah. it's not uh, comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we started with happiness, it's certainly more pleasurable to grow and learn and be challenged in a way that doesn't push too much and that feels adequately paced and sort of like one is being companioned uh, along the way. But, you know, a, a little gentle push here and there. That feels the best, perhaps, for me. But mm -hmm. sometimes the kinds of situations that are most growthful are actually quite painful and aren't safe at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's, a, that's an important distinction. As a clinician, and you mentioned clinical work, there is a real art to pacing the accompaniment and the being with patients and at the same time challenging them and confronting them in ways that may feel comfortable or may feel pleasurable. And that's, that's always a, the, the meaning of a particular challenge is always cast against the backdrop of the relationship and the safety that's built into that relationship. So if one has many, many years of history um, mm -hmm. where it feels very safe and you can predict how the other person will behave and what the meanings of their words are, it can be easy to have a pretty strong challenge in that situation. If, if you don't mm -hmm. know someone very well to challenge them without tact and you know, directly, mm -hmm. it can be very hostile and aggressive. Similarly, people who've had lots of trauma, you know, uh, and, and we all have uh, mm -hmm. to a greater or lesser extent. And at different points in our lives, that trauma can be very, uh, very much in the forefront. A challenge mm -hmm. can be felt as very intrusive at that point. So, uh, and then it's neither safe nor happy, nor um, it, it can be not very growthful if it shuts down the relationship. So you mentioned, you know, asking this question, how, how might I know if enough is enough and if this is too problematic and I should leave the relationship or is the, is the relationship growthful? And I think that's a very interesting and complicated question. It's another version of should I stay or should I go, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's all about context and it's all about one's personal psychology, the personal psychology of the other person, uh, the history, how, how many capacities one can bring to bear on navigating those kinds of challenges and so on. So it's pretty complicated. Um, but yeah, for me, there are some people who have really good attunement with me mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they can challenge me. And it's, it's just exquisite when that happens. And mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the aim for most of these kinds of scenarios. And it doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a, a very nice guidance because the trust in the end is our compass somehow to understand <laughs> if it's worth it to, to stay day and mm -hmm. uh, keep going in a relationship that doesn't feel uh, so happy at the moment mm -hmm. was there a time in your life in which um, you had to start from scratch or you were <laughs> you were challenged from uh, any point of view and yet uh, you managed to feel happy 
yet you manage to feel uh, i don't know yeah we can discuss the meaning of the word happiness that's true uh, but you feel content you feel you you felt alive i think i'm challenged every day so that's a, <laughs> that's an inter- i mean i'm training to be a psychoanalyst and i find that it's a very challenging profession and it requires a great deal of me so i'm challenged every single day but one scenario that comes to mind is a very stark uh obvious challenge and, and kind of concrete in a lot of ways. I, I decided at one point in my 20s to move abroad and mm. I sold everything I owned and quit my job and didn't have a very solid plan. I thought it was a solid plan at the time, of course, but I was pretty naive. <laughs> and I moved abroad and I didn't really speak the language, sort Where of. You know, I went to Germany mm-hmm. and uh, I spent three years there and ultimately realized I learned a lot it was nothing like I expected Mm -hmm. and it was both surprisingly wonderful and really challenging in ways that I hadn't anticipated Um, but I learned a lot about myself because not only being in those challenges but being in another culture allows you to be outside of all of the assumptions that one has that are built into culture and to really see culture for what it is so it's a little bit like being in the matrix and out of the matrix and being able to see it Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating for me to just realize, oh, there's so many assumptions that I have that are, that can be questioned. And so it was a very um, broadening time when I ultimately realized, okay, I, I don't want to live here. I need to go home. And that was a very clear decision. I had nothing. I mean, really, I, mm-hmm. I'd spent three years as a dance teacher, you know, sort of. Sort oh, of really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and an English teacher and just sort of, you know, having fun and and so on and experiencing things. And at this point, you know, having no money, no home, no plan, no relationship, you know, sure, I had friends and family back home, but it, um, it was a really humbling experience to actually build one's life from the beginning, Mm -hmm. with with literally nothing and sort of the, the structure of where am I going to live? Where do I want to live? And okay, do I want this spatula or that spatula? Like literally very basic <laughs> kinds of considerations. Where do I want to bank and why? And um, what is worth paying for? You know, what, what kind of career do I want to have? And this kind of exercise um, was kind of exquisite in, the, in the, the building of the meaning of things. So I can't say mm-hmm. it was happy. There were moments of exquisite joy and freedom. Um, mm-hmm that I will treasure forever. But there was also moments of tremendous struggle and real questioning and uh, um, kind of a basic level survival sort of understanding. Like how, do, how does one build a life from nothing? Build a life from nothing is a, is a really interesting project. And mm. I'm very proud of what I, you know, what's come out of that, I guess, because everything has been intentional. Well, and we can talk about intentionality. I'm speaking to a philosopher, so that's actually quite hilarious in itself. You know, to what extent has that been actively intentional? And can I say that it's conscious? I don't know. Um, But it's been interesting. Uh, Is there a kind of intentionality, conscious intentionality that guides uh, our choices in life? Or uh, is our story that somehow drives us in life? I don't know. I, I think maybe it, I think it's a lot of it is unconscious. Of course, you're you know a philosopher is speaking to a psychoanalyst. I think you're right. <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, one can't really say, but we do think we have conscious choice and freedom, and we do think that we um, are driving towards something. And of course, we end up in very different places than we expect.
but that part of your life was very important for you to be the person you are today. I mean, you wouldn't bargain that state of uh, confusion and... Uh... No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. I think uh, it gave me an understanding of of culture and situatedness. My, my family has, my parents are Canadian. Their parents are from various places in Europe. I think each generation has moved somewhere. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, there's a, a need and a desire to really understand the role of culture and immigration stories and so on. Um, so this satisfied that in some ways, but it also, uh, the trial of having nothing and building it really made, made it clear what I value. Mm-hmm. and it, somehow we have to have lack and struggle in order to value things I think or at least that works for me maybe it doesn't mm-hmm. work for everybody but there's mm-hmm. something about uh the difficulties and the challenges and the struggle that that produces real care mm-hmm. uh for the things that we have or the people that we have close mm-hmm. to us mm-hmm. yeah so do you think that uh, <clears throat> to move uh, into another uh, area, but close to this one, uh, that it's possible uh, to feel happy in pain, to feel happy when in pain, when in, uh, uh, I don't know, stuck in a chronic illness or uh, in a life situation that is really not the best for us. Uh, um, Absolutely, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those two things, I think it's it's very often that when people are in pain and pain, broadly understood, physical pain, emotional pain, psychic pain, um, chronic pain is a different story, perhaps. Um, but also, I think there, there can be happiness. So, uh, you know, take the case of um, being happy when someone dies. Sometimes we are happy because they've been in pain and suffering and there's release at the mm-hmm at the end of, of life in those situations. So that can be kind of a mixed feeling where there's both mourning and also happiness, or maybe even joking and mirth mm-hmm. um, at funerals or, or what have you. Um, I think there are situations where people have chronic pain are able to transcend that and really have lots of joy and happiness inside of the experience while pain is going on. And I think sometimes we welcome pain because it's actually healing. Um, many, many times, patients, at least in in psychotherapy or in psychoanalysis, will resist pain at certain points. We're, Mm -hmm. you know, Freud talked about drive theory, and of course, that's been updated um, to include more complex models, but no one really seeks out pain generally. But to be able to learn over a lifetime to lean into the process of grieving Mm -hmm. or sadness or welcoming pain and, and not resisting it sometimes can be very, very powerful because we can then both master it which is maybe a omnipotent way to skip over something but but also mm-hmm. because sometimes there is there is transition and there is real relief in moving through the pain i i, I like to think of it a little bit like the weather nobody mm-hmm. really starts to think about like uh, you know we might wring our hands about oh no it's going to rain and i had a picnic planned or something mm-hmm. but we we recognize that we can't resist the rain the rain is going to come and in fact it brings good things in the end even if even though we might want to have a picnic and i think this is a little bit like how i see pain and that is not to say that that you know chronic pain is good i don't think it's a it's a badge of honor or something we should welcome but some more mundane cases of pain where you know, in birth, for example, there is pain, you have to welcome it and not resist it, that usually goes better. Or I mean, you can resist it if you like, but you're going to still go through pain, probably. Um, Or in the case of, you know, death or illness. 
but I think we, you know, I think we, our relationship to pain is perhaps more, more important. And then there's these cases of, you know, sadomasochism, sometimes which can be healing and powerful for people, and sometimes which can be problematic for people. And those are cases of mixes of pain and pleasure or pain and happiness. Um, and there's always a lot of rich, complex ideas to, to explore inside of those situations as well. So yeah, we, I, think, I think we can have pain and pleasure together. And I think often we do. Have you ever experienced, do you have uh, a, a personal experience uh, that you can share uh, about this uh, that comes to your mind? I think, uh, and of course, there's lots of little things. Um, in analysis, there's a lot of situations uh, where uh, pain and pleasure is mixed, where <laughs> you, know, you don't want to confront something and uh, one is resistant and it's painful. And in the end, it's relieving somehow to be able to face it or to have someone interpret and speak the truth of, of what is happening. So it, those are kind of smaller examples usually, but um, also important. Thanks. Yeah, I can relate completely. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, what about uh, your research? Because I mean, you wrote two books, uh, articles, and now you're writing a podcast. Uh, how does all this play into your uh, academic and practical work? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, um, I'm preoccupied lately this day, these days with kind of a large area of research and practice and thinking, which is uh, what is the role of consumer technology on mm. our minds? Mm. And kind of broadly understood, I, I find mm. that big tech, even small tech, isn't really taking up publicly the discourse, of course, for a wide variety of reasons. It threatens their um, capitalist aims, but mm-hmm. um, they aren't really taking up the ethics or, or even the question of why are we, the public good, I guess, is, is maybe what I'm, what I'm saying. The public good and the unintended consequences of launching this or that or the other application or, or product. And while I don't purport to be able to really take up that question in full, um, I would like, at least like to participate in the way that I can in the dialogue with other people about um, what maybe psychoanalysis or psychology can bring to bear on the question of what do we think, what do we surmise, what are we noticing in our clinical practices and in our lives from a psychological or a psychoanalytic perspective mm-hmm. is happening as people interact with each other and with technology directly um, to their sense of self, to their relationships, to the world, frankly. So these are, these are really big questions and I, I don't, think I'm really going to be able to tackle them, but I at least want to participate and engage others in participating because I think it's one of the most important questions of our times. For me, when I see any kind of difficulty or any kind of major change, I usually can imagine that technology has a role in driving that big change. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the way I think about it is, and, and we see this in our political elections and in the way people consume information or Um, think about the information that they have. I I think we've really, and and lots of people have said this, we've polarized ourselves along political lines or along viewpoints. We don't read broadly. We don't have good critical skills for questioning what is it that I'm taking in that my smartphone is pushing at me. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're masters of our attention. I don't think as a group we can, I can remember the day when I, I was a little bit late to get a cell phone. And I remember going to a dinner party and everyone had, you know, iPhones. I still don't have an iPhone. I have a, I have an Android phone. Uh, uh-huh. um, 
maybe because I don't know how to use an iPhone, which is a, a ridiculous thing, I suppose, but I'm being obstinate about it. That said, I, um, I remember being at this dinner party and watching people have conversations and someone would say, oh, I saw a film, but I don't remember the director. And then they would take out their iPhone and look for the director and then answer the question for everyone. And I found it so irritating because they broke eye contact with everyone every time they did that. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of, you know, this was probably 10 years ago. It was the beginning of ubiquitous iPhone use at tables and, and conversations. Mm -hmm. And so it struck me as strange because I didn't have an iPhone and because this was new. But mm -hmm. what I realized in that moment was, okay, there's going to be insiders and outsiders. There's going to be people competing for attention. This has been written about. This is no new idea. But it feels mm -hmm. awful to be... Um, sidelined to an object instead of prioritizing the, the intimate contact between people. And instead of really leaving space for the wonder of, I don't know what the director is, you know, there's the, there's the basics of challenging your memory and making sure your memory stays healthy and you know, thinking about that. But, but more to the point, what does it mean to not remember and to associate or to have the wrong director's name well, and to associate to that and have a social conversation about that? That can lead you to some pretty fun places. And if we're constantly checking Google, we never ever really associate in that way. We don't interact with one another. Our eye contact is broken and we become um, different kinds of people. We see that in our teenagers and in our, our children now who have smartphones. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a great deal of, of pause and worry. Um, I'm trying to be open-minded to the idea that maybe consumer technology is improving our lives. Uh, of course, people who are members of you know, small uh, minorities, you know, transgender youth, for example, who can, from a, a small town in America, find other transgender youth online mm -hmm. and communicate mm -hmm. with them and yeah. find support. That's a brilliant use of how technology can uh, support emotional health and, and social connection. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that it's good for all of us all the time. And I'm not sure that anyone's really caring about it. So I'm writing about it and I'm speaking about it. Do you think it can change uh, the way uh, in which uh, our in unconscious operates on us? So do you think there's a kind of a pre-predicative category? I don't know how to... Yes. I, think, uh, I, I mean, yes and no. I think, yeah. I think we can't kill the unconscious or make it <laughs> or destroy it. I think we're not so powerful. But I do think we can close our ability to listen to our unconscious by mm -hmm. filling it up with junk food. You know, I'm going to call it junk uh -huh. food. It's, it's essentially, uh -huh. if you really look at yourself or observe yourself, and I do it too, scrolling endlessly because you have 15 minutes and you're bored yes. and you yes. want something and you know you want something, you don't know what you want uh -huh. and you can't tolerate looking out the window or just being with yourself, which is where mm -hmm. you might go into reverie or you might doze or you might have an association or have a daydream. Instead mm. of that, you fill yourself with absent scrolling. Of course, you're daydreaming while you're doing that too, but it's a lot harder to pay attention to that channel, I think, of the mind and of the soul while you're scrolling about Kim Kardashian or whatever else is there. <laughs> Which I always, feel, I always feel like I need to take a shower after I scroll, you know, like, oh, this is terrible. You know, there's nothing interesting here. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's <laughs> awful. Yeah, and uh, it's in a loop. That's the yes least uh, healthy things that think that happens uh, mm. because uh, the algorithm 
proposes you things uh, that uh, the algorithm itself uh, thinks uh, you like <laughs> and uh, and so you while uh, if you look out of the window you you might uh, connect with your instincts uh, with your deepest dreams uh, be startled surprised challenged by something mm-hmm. uh, the scrolling algorithm tends to put your mind uh, always in a loop Yes. Uh, which is really unhealthy because you need to you change. Know, yeah. I'll say when I was a, a consultant, most of the, the companies that I consulted to, some of them were education clients and nonprofit clients, but many of them were technology companies. Ah, uh-huh. And the reason I left that field was precisely because some of the companies that are now big tech were very small then or were you know smaller. And they came to us with the question, of how do we monetize this thing that we have or how do we drive people to purchase more? And okay, those are interesting capitalist questions and they're useful for business. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we gave them were lots of strategies, testing various marketing, you know, marketing initiatives, testing various taglines, testing various click path, click stream, you know, the way they organize their websites and so on. And what we found was that we could, people are lemmings essentially, which was frightening to me to realize, we can encourage people to click and to go and to buy in large groups with very little uh, impetus against what they might ordinarily do. And I, I'm surprised by that actually. And I, it frightened me. So I think, me too. I think some part of this is about, I think my mind is also certainly influenceable. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're buying something, you're absolutely set out, I'm going to buy this one thing, and then you find something next to it, it recommends, of course, that's compelling, and you buy it too. You never would have thought of that if you'd gone into a regular store. I mean, maybe the store would have had the thing mm-hmm. next to it, but maybe mm-hmm. not. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's something very dangerous about the ease and the, the distance from actual cash or from whatever that makes it just sort of easy to be a lemming. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested in the ways we go to sleep, the ways we become numb, mm-hmm. the ways we, with, with the automaticness of it all, we kind of are disconnected or disembodied. And I think those things can be dangerous, particularly mm-hmm. when applied to politics or to hate crimes or the ways, uh, the ways people can be mean online. That's been, that's been researched and, and discussed as well. And today, do you feel that today you are currently working uh, on what you believe in and makes you feel happy and uh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm not. I don't have. You know, the, the beauty of midlife is that you don't have so much time, mm-hmm. and so only the things that I care about is what I do. Of course, I have to do things that I don't care about. I have to do laundry and dishes and whatever. But, um, yeah. but I think the projects that I take up, I only take up things that I find interesting and that I care about and that I think uh, are a good use of my capacities. Mm-hmm. So you managed to get there. What kind of hindrances uh, you had to overcome to get here? I mean, besides, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, uh, maybe getting over myself, you know, getting over uh, worries, worries that I... Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough or I'll fail or I'll make a fool of myself. That's, you know, that's, that's one big hindrance. I think being a woman is an interesting hindrance in mm-hmm. professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sexual power and, and mm-hmm. is an interesting thing. So historically, as far as I understand, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, 
most of my heroes from the previous generation, many of them are men. Yeah. And this is because of historical issues associated, you know, birth control was only legal in this kind of like real birth control, decent birth control was only really legal here in 67, I believe. And mm. as a result, we have some systematic biases where mm. women are not necessarily or have not historically felt free uh, to be in public life in the way that men have. So mm -hmm. the, the generation that's older than me is, is frequently, those heroes are frequently men. And yeah. throughout my life, you know, when I was younger and they were younger, I mm. think having to balance sexuality and striving with men, it can be challenging. So I've been in, in situations where I've, you know, it's been assumed I might be the director of something, but I'm assumed to be the, the woman who has to go get coffee or um, situations where I get shut down based on, or, or, you know, somebody proposes something untoward at a business meeting because I'm a woman, a single woman at that time. Um, mm. I, th I think sexism and sexuality problematize sometimes professional life for women, and they certainly have for me. So having to figure out how to handle um, uh, consulting clients, you know, making passes at me or people dismissing my views in, on the grounds of I'm a woman or people making, you know, derogatory comments about what I wear or mm. how heavy or thin I am or whatever about my body. Like these kinds of things happen in business contexts and in professional life. Absolutely. And uh, the kinds of topics that I'm taking up are sexuality and technology. And these things are filled <laughs> with men and uh, it can be, it can be a challenge. And that's not to say that, um, that all men are uh, pigs or that it's only been that way. I've, I've certainly encountered many lovely men who have been very grateful, gracious, kind men who have supported me and mentored me um, mm -hmm. and have not made our relationship about uh, competition and a threat, you know, for me to, to their manhood or have not uh, sexualized our relationship. And I think mm -hmm. to them, I'm, I'm super grateful. Mm -hmm. I think also, I, I would say there's also competition between women. I mean, this is all classic Oedipal stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, right in my, in my realm. But I think those things can be challenging for women in professional life. Yeah, because, you know, sexuality in general uh, is a source of energy. Totally. Uh, and um, we cannot give up on it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, we have to learn how to tame it, uh, to be in the society. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's yes. quite complicated. That, <laughs> and I think, I think this is the project of, of psychoanalysis is how to free yeah. up, you know, this libidinal energy and make it useful for creative endeavors in some sort of sublimated way that, that works and how to um, understand boundaries better, be able to set them better, be able to feel free to um, have desires but also to deal with the erotic, you know, the things that are sensuously interesting that one can have in public life in, in many ways, not in all the ways, but in, in many ways, I would say, you know, enjoying a good meal with someone else and really enjoying that and feeling free to do that, feeling like one can set boundaries with people who are being inappropriate or thing, you know, coming with uh, agenda items that one doesn't want to participate in. So I think, I think yeah. that's a, that those are a set of skills that are critical for women in particular, but perhaps for everyone. You did a lot of research in, um, in the field of sexuality, uh, relationships, uh, infidelity. Mm -hmm. I know that it's one of your uh, most read uh, uh, works. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think 
that uh, giving yourself uh, to a life of uh, lust uh, and uh, erotic uh, or, or just pleasure, not necessarily erotic, uh, to pursue <laughs> pleasure would, uh, would make you happy, would finally be the way to be happy, or um, it's not enough? No, it's not enough. I think it's not enough. Um, one time I, I heard that the best uh, way to, to write a good poem, and I know this is a mm-hmm. little bit tangential, but the best way to write a good pro- poem is to have constraints. So mm-hmm. if someone tells you you're free to do whatever you like, write whatever you like, most people sit there for a long time and don't come up with anything. Mm-hmm. And if you tell someone you can write in one page, you must write in a haiku form or you must write in this other form, it has to rhyme and it has to be about rain. Uh, most people write something that's brilliant uh-huh. and or at least creative. And so I think I think sexuality works that way too. There's something about the constraint uh-huh. that allows us the freedom of passion and expression. If one can, you know, fuck your way through the world, um, <laughs> I, I think at a certain point it becomes numbing or uh-huh. um, empty or. Uh-huh. A constant search, a constant desire and lack is what one experiences. And th- that's my experience clinically. That's my experience, you know, just, just hearing what people say. Um, I don't think lust is the, and maybe this is why it's, you know, one of, it's in a lot of religious communities as something that is mm-hmm. supposed to be avoided. There's something mm-hmm. wonderful about developing a relationship. And for some people, several relationships, either sequentially or at the same time, but, but staying within the constraints of a relationship and working out mm-hmm. conflicts and mm-hmm. dealing with difference and dealing with um, all that comes with a, the depth of that mm-hmm. can be really um, beautiful oh. in, that, in that kind of important way. Thank you. That's, uh, that's an amazing point of view that uh, you're sharing with us. Uh, thanks. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love the metaphor with the poem. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, time flew by, and we are at our final question here, which is my ritual question at this podcast. And uh, yeah, I would like to ask you what do you think uh, is the meaning of life if life <laughs> has a meaning? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it's the usual the life question. <laughs> And uh, if happiness has to do anything with it, uh, or uh, it's just one of the many values that we might have in this uh, grocery basket of life. Wow. You know, that's a really I know. Uh, hard question. <laughs> I'm not sure I know. I think, uh-huh. I think I'm like a little ant, you know, part of a colony or something. Mm-hmm. And I have to do my part inside of that. And it's really mm-hmm. tiny. Mm-hmm. And there's something much bigger that I can't see, you know, something mathematical or you know you can call it god or you can call it the laws of nature i don't know something mm-hmm. purposeful perhaps that has to do with forces i have some mm-hmm. I, I almost want to get cosmic with this there's something about the expansion of the universe and like what is the universe yeah. inside of that that question starts to touch upon that yeah. frightens me and kind of bewilders me but my meaning of life my meaning of my life is something mm-hmm. that i could grasp and that is to um use my capacities and whatever it is that is unique about me to the fullest Mm -hmm. and to leave something better for those who come after me. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things that I think are are meaningful. And so, and maybe enjoy some of it along the way. I mean, that's part of leaving something better for other people, for, for children, for the next generation, for mentoring, Mm -hmm. for, you know, politics, like all of those are ways in which I should contribute 
to leaving my little ant colony a little bit better. But I think <laughs> the meaning of all life, then we have to take into account trees and you know, protozoa mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. aliens if they exist and you know, I don't know what else. Uh -huh. Like I think it becomes too yeah. big of a question. So I really keep it to like, what is the meaning of my life? Mm -hmm. And that's what I choose to do so that I can feel satisfied. That's beautiful. So that at the end of my life, I can say I lived out who I am and I did something better for other people, hopefully. And mm -hmm. that's as much as I can do. But I think, uh, and if everyone does that, then it's probably a, a pretty decent thing as far as humans are concerned. But we do, you know, it's interesting. My daughter is a, a vegan. I have to consider, is that not a, a human-centric view that I have? Like maybe mm. what is better for the next generation actually hurts the trees or is problematic for the aliens or whatever. <laughs> and I can't even conceive of how it is that I affect all other life. And is there maybe, is it maybe better for the entire, this project of life and the meaning for all humans to die? for us to stop with our madness like maybe it is maybe mm -hmm. amazon should go offline we should stop consuming half of it you know which is a horrifying idea um so i think i think that's a difficult mm -hmm. question about all life there's human life there's my life Absolutely. There's, there's other lives too and uh, perhaps ones that we don't even know exist and so <clears throat> happiness is one of the many things that can be part of your meaning it's not uh, the pursue the goal Not at all in mm. fact i would trade happiness mm -hmm. for the the things i said in order to have to live out who i am mm. and to leave something behind for others i would actually suffer that's more important to me than being happy which is perhaps something to bring up in my own analysis but um <laughs> but yeah. i think there's you know what if we find ourselves in a situation like the holocaust or the ukraine war or whatever uh -huh. sometimes suffering so that mm -hmm. others may be okay, might be the best answer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sometimes we can't avoid suffering. Like I can't imagine, maybe there's happiness for the people in Ukraine and small bits of jokes and so on. I'm sure there are moments of happiness, but one can't really say that that looks anything like sustained no. happiness. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, that's a horror. And so what is, what is the purpose of that kind of life? If I found myself suddenly in the shoes of one of those soldiers or one of those women or one of those children, what would be the meaning of my life in that circumstance? You know, I get to sit here and theorize. I'm sitting here in Berkeley, you know, I have a home. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I have a job. I have my health. I think that's a very different perspective from which to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love to ask these questions to as many people as I know. Yeah. It's all informing, valuable. Every one of you is giving me different perspectives, which I, I love. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Are you going to have an answer for us at the end? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no. no. I'm just putting together uh, this jigsaw. And uh, I actually treasure uh, bits and pieces of uh, what uh, you and uh, uh, the other people I, I'm asking uh, say. And, and mm -hmm. it's uh, remarkable to see how everyone gives a different uh, answer. Because as you said, uh, yeah, it's not the meaning of life it's uh, too big of a question and i would love to be able to ask this question to a tree a rock uh, my dog but, <laughs> yeah alas <laughs> yeah <laughs> unfortunately yeah as you said uh, we don't know what kind of conflicts maybe are uh, are there we mm -hmm. we don't speak the same language no we but don't 
I, I think that uh, we can observe some kind of answer that is still possible if uh, you are meditative uh, enough and so on. But yeah, yeah, who knows? The interpretation is always the problem. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It was uh, absolutely valuable to, to have you here, to have... Uh, uh, your answer on so many questions and uh, your point of view on happiness and uh, life and uh, its hindrances. And um, I wish you well and all the best for uh, your uh, career and work and life. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.